Today we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 12. So if you are physically able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? And follow along silently as I read from Proverbs chapter 12. I'm going to read the entirety of the passage. Proverbs 12, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Word of God says. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. I just lost my place. Sorry. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is condemned according to his good, excuse me, a man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. The way of a fool in his own eyes is right, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You're probably aware that we're spending this summer in the book of Proverbs. And this Sunday, we're talking about marrying wisely. It's an important message and one that I actually rearranged the preaching schedule in order to be able to preach. It was originally scheduled when I was in Japan. So we had our concert of prayer earlier this month. And that's what the other campuses are doing today. They're doing a concert of prayer, but we're doing the Marrying Wiser Sermon. I want to be able to preach it this week. I did that not because I think you wouldn't have been served well by, to hear another preacher deliver the message. Not at all. It's because I really wanted to deliver this particular message. I really wanted to preach it because it's, it's, it's definitely on my heart. 
Now, it's also a hard message to deliver, at least from my perspective. I might be overthinking it, but let's face facts. Our congregation is fairly diverse. Some are in the middle of wedding planning. Like, even as I speak, another detail comes to mind, another task hits your to-do list. You think of another person to invite, a person to pay. Get off Pinterest now. Like, there's, there's things that are on your mind right now because it's the biggest thing that's just all-consuming. As far as things that are going on in your mind, this is a big deal, and it's coming up, and you're in the midst of it. Others are thinking just as many details, but not about their wedding, but about their child's wedding. Some among us hope to never have to think about that. You're single, you're happy, and you're loving it. You think of the ways God has been using you as a man of God or a woman of the faith, and you can't fathom what life would be like if you were like me, attending baseball games last minute because your son's team was killing it in a tournament last weekend. You, they lost in the end. You, like Paul, look at others and say, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Some find themselves struggling to be content in being single. You've heard blowhard preachers your whole stinking life reminding you of God's calling on your life to be content as a single man or woman. And while that's biblically correct, while you see that in the text, you can't help but be driven batty by the fact that every preacher who said that, he himself has been married. And when you read that and when you hear that, it drives you a little crazy. Now, I don't think you need to be married to be happy. I don't think you need to be single to serve the Lord. The aim of this sermon is not to marry off the single folks, but to share wisdom if you are considering marriage. What does the Bible have to say about marrying wisely? And in a sense, it's a bit of a catch-22. You see, wisdom by definition comes by applying truth, applying knowledge, usually over time. Not many people choose wisely whom to marry time after time after time again. Like this is one of those things that you're hoping to choose wisely your first time out of the gate. So it's not like, yeah, after I've, cho- so I've chosen seven spouses, but now here's what I've learned from the last six. The seven one's really awesome. That's usually not people's story. Usually not the case. So what we're doing here is we're talking, uh, we're, we're talking about marrying somebody, and you're, you're, you're not trying it out once with someone to hopefully get it right down the line with someone else, right? Like, that's not good. Uh, the, the, the Bible does speak of remarriage. Remarriage is not a sin. God certainly blesses subsequent marriages. You may be in a, a marriage that was not your first marriage right now and be loving it and be glorifying God and being very thankful for it. But even the happiest remarried man or woman would have to admit they didn't plan it that way, right? Because it comes about as a result of the ending of a first marriage, either due to death or divorce. And nobody enters that first marriage saying, no, you know what? Actually, I did marry her hoping that I would learn a lot so I could marry you one day. Because she was my dry run, and this is like, this is the real deal. Like, people don't typically do that. That's just typically not the way, right? That's not a thing. If, you shouldn't do that. So, so people don't marry people like as a practice run for the real thing. So when it comes to considering a spouse, we want to marry wisely because we want to do our best to get it right. Now, why do we want to do our best to get it right? You say, well, divorce runs rampant in our culture and we want to do our best not to get divorced. Friends, I think that's true. Uh, I think we do want to do our best to, to not get divorced. But that's not the reason we want to marry wisely. I don't like a fear-driven why. Does that make sense? 
I don't like a fear-driven why. Like, not many people are motivated by things for too long when they're just motivated by fear. Why are you doing this? Because what if I get divorced? Why are you doing this? Because what if I get sick? Why are you doing this? Because what if this happens? Why are you doing... Okay, those are things to consider, but I hope and pray that's not your primary motivation in doing anything wisely in life. So while I really hope that we can avoid divorce, because divorce is very painful, and we'll talk about that later, that's not the reason we want to marry wisely. I want to show you a better reason to marry wisely in the Lord. And for that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I don't like a fear-driven why. I don't like fear driving us to do the right thing. I want us to be driven with something better than fear, something more powerful than fear, and something more lasting than fear. And I think we can get that, in this case, from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, earlier than what I'm pointing to, but I'm going to start on verse 25, if you would. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here it is in verse 32. This is the why, not a fear-driven why, but a gospel-driven why for why we want to marry wisely. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, our primary reason for wanting to marry wisely isn't to avoid the pains of divorce. Hopefully we will avoid the pains of divorce. I don't want anyone to experience the pains of divorce. But that's not our reason for marrying wisely. We want to marry wisely because marriage, by design, by God's design, is a picture of the gospel. That's what Ephesians 5.32 says. It's a mystery, it's profound, and it refers to Christ and the church. Why marry wisely? Because we want to paint as clear and as awesome and as God-glorifying a picture of God's love for us and our love for him as possible with our marriage. That's what will get you up in the morning. That is what will make you want to glorify God with your life and with your marriage. When you realize... I am told to put on display the picture of the gospel in my marriage. That's how God designed this. It's not just to avoid divorce. It's because we've been called to something greater than that. We've been called to paint a picture of the gospel. And so the reason we want to marry wisely shouldn't be fear-driven or even caution-driven, but gospel-driven. If God calls you to marry... He's called you to depict a relationship between Christ and the church. So the question becomes, not who am I least likely to divorce? Like, what a terrible reason. So why do you choose him? I figured we wouldn't get divorced. Like, is that, that just doesn't make your heart melt with romance, right? Why do you choose her? We're not likely to break up. It's not just who are you least likely to divorce, not at all. But who would with me paint the best, clearest picture of Christ and the church? More on that later. So, marrying wisely. What does the word of God have to say about marrying wisely? And more specifically, we're in a Proverbs series. 
In light of the series, what does the book of Proverbs have to say about marrying wisely? Well, lots. Uh, now, you might look at Proverbs and say, you know what, all of these verses are written to a dude. It's all about, like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. What about he who finds a husband? Like, is, is, it, oh, is it like an upgrade for the man to find a wife and the wife's always going to be settling? Sadly, it feels that way many times, at least to me. But that's not what's being said. Proverbs is a man, right, Solomon, writing to who? Writing to his son. So he's writing to his son. He hopes that his son finds a godly what? wife. So he's speaking in those terminology. But that doesn't mean that we can't glean wisdom from the book of Proverbs that applies to both husbands and wives as they consider a spouse. Does that make sense? So when I speak to my kids, if I'm speaking to my son about marriage, I'm referring to his future what? His future wife. If I'm speaking to my daughter about marriage, I'm referring to her future husband. So it depends on the audience, right? Solomon has his son in mind, but that doesn't mean we can't apply these things both ways, at least in many cases. So it's with that mentality that we consider what Proverbs has to say about marriage to men and women. And Proverbs contains wisdom to apply when consider someone to marry. Here's some of it. Proverbs 12 and verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Wow, hyperbole much? So an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. So this is basically how good marriage can be, and this is how bad marriage can be. Your, your marriage can be something that you want to wear like a, a crown. Not, not showing off, but continually humbled by the, 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 the place in which the Lord has chosen to, to set you, perhaps. Okay? Netflix much? So, the crown. If you are familiar at all with Queen Elizabeth, when you see Queen Elizabeth wearing the crown, when you read about Queen Elizabeth and the position that she's been given, she doesn't really parade it around. She's not walking around saying, like, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, she wears it in a lot of humility and reverence for the position that God has given her. She's very well aware of that. If you read about her, if you read her writings of people who write of her, she's wearing the crown. She's not like, woo, look at me. She's wearing the crown, and she's aware that God has placed her in a position to be the monarch in the United Kingdom, and she's very humbled by that. She wears that crown, not shamefully, but she wears the crown as a, as a thing of humility, as an awareness of God having placed her in that position. Marriage can be something similar, not showing off, wearing a crown, showing off, but continually humbled, continually honored by the place in which the Lord has chosen to set you. Wow, I can't believe the Lord has chosen to give me this person. Wow, I can't believe the Lord has chosen to bless me with her, to bless me with him, to share my earthly days. Or it can be something that is absolutely shameful, embarrassing, something you want to keep hidden for a variety of reasons. Uh, to the point that this is something that would bring absolute humility and honor before the Lord. And you're saying, oh, wow, I'm constantly amazed. I look at my husband and I think there is none better. I look at my wife and I think, I can't believe I got to marry you. To that extreme, there's the other extreme where it could be like shameful and rottenness to your bones. What a, what a, what a picture, right? It could, it, it could suffice it to say, marrying wisely is something we certainly want to do. And we hope and pray that our marriages would bring glory to God. What else does Proverbs have to say? Proverbs 18 and verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19 and verse 13, A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a quarreling, 
Uh, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. We see something similar in Proverbs 27 and verse 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's hand. So here we're told that to marry someone who is quarrelsome or constantly argumentative or constantly questioning how something is done or always complaining or resolving an issue and then coming back to rehash it over and over and over again, that this would not be a good thing. Marrying someone who is quarrelsome is like a continual dripping of rain. Now, have you ever fallen asleep to the sound of Rain. Raise your hand if you've ever fallen asleep to the sound of rain, whether it's real or artificial, right? Because lots of sound machines have the sounds of rain, like there's waves and then there's crickets, which I think are annoying. But, 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 but the, the waves are nice, and then white noise is nice, and then you can also just like do a, a nice falling rain, and it makes you feel nice. Or you might just open your, open your window on a nice cool night and hear the rain falling, and it brings comfort, and it brings peace, and it's a great way to fall asleep until you hear the sound of rain inside. Right? Sound of rain outside, like so cool. Sound of rain inside, nothing is more of a nuisance, right? If you hear the dropping of rain coming down in a place where it's not supposed to be, when you're lying in bed and you think, I think I just heard that hit the ceiling. Our roof has a leak. Or you hear it come, or you realize you have a leak and then you've set up a a bucket because you have to get the leak fixed, so you set up a bucket. Then there's the sound of that raindrop hitting that bucket. How many people think that sounds so awesome? Somebody just did it. That doesn't sound awesome. That will keep you up at night, right? So rain, good thing. Outside, good thing. Inside, bad thing. Um, Sometimes resolving conflicts within marriage, good thing. Constantly quarreling, constantly arguing, constantly nagging one to another, constantly saying, okay, we've settled this. No, no, wait, we haven't settled this. I want to go back to the tape. Constantly doing that, ugh, that's really, really hard to live with. And so Proverbs tells us that, um, that, that a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. That constant dripping that makes you want to punch yourself in the face for relief, that marrying somebody who is quarrelsome is like that. That's what Proverbs is telling us. Then two times we're warned again of what it's like to live with someone who is quarrelsome. Proverbs 21.9, better to live on the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 25.24, It is better to sit in the chairs of Fort Thomas than to live in a house with a quarrelsome wife. That's not what it says. That's a joke. But just think for a moment, think for a moment, like sitting on the corner of a of a housetop, like that kind of makes you want to adjust yourself just a little in, like sitting on the corner, it's better to be in that much discomfort, sitting on the corner of a roof where it is not comfortable, that that would even be better than to live with someone who is quarrelsome. Uh, Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Uh, The idea that inheritance is a blessing to us one day, that's given to us one day, and we're grateful for it, but marrying someone who is prudent and wise and careful and, and, and loves the Lord, that blesses us today, right here, right now. We take advantage of that right now. In Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. And, uh, for more on Proverbs 31, uh, you can, I preached on that back in, on Mother's Day. You can find that website, find that on our website. And so that's it. So all the verses in Proverbs that speak specifically, pointedly, directly to marriage. But instead of closing in prayer right now, uh, I want to encourage you to broaden your perspective just a bit. 
See, I think one of the most dangerous things that we can do, dangerous, that's a bit much. I think one of the saddest things that we can do is to treat the Bible like an encyclopedia. And I realize I've been saying that for many, many, many years, and my kids really don't know what an encyclopedia is. So let me reword that. I think one of the most dangerous things for us to do is to treat the Bible like a search engine, where we type in a subject or we type in a keyword and we look at what comes up and that's it, right? So encyclopedias, are we even encyclopedia? Raise your hand, encyclopedias, part of your life? Okay, okay, so it's not totally fading out. My kids look at me like this because we're, we're not using encyclopedias a lot. But encyclopedias, set of books, reference material, you search by topic and you learn about that topic and you, you, you gain knowledge and wisdom, okay? But you're not gonna, you don't need to know everything to know something about the topic. If we treat the Bible like that and we're like, okay, why don't I learn about marriage in Proverbs? We'll look up husband, wife, husbanding, marriage, marrying, and see what comes back. You get a very short list of verses. If you treat the Bible like a search engine, you're going to miss out on all there is to apply from God's word when it comes to any area of life, specifically when it comes to marriage. We do ourselves a grave disservice if we do that because we will miss out on the depth of insight the word of God provides. So I want you to broaden your perspective a bit for the remainder of our time And consider this, point number two, that when it comes to marrying wisely, you need to consider the goal of the Christian life as a whole, running the race well so as to win the prize. Running the race well so as to win the prize. So we're not, you know, marriage is one aspect of our life, a very important aspect of our life if God calls us to, in fact, be married. But we don't want to lose sight of the big picture, like what is the purpose of my life? 1 Corinthians 9.24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, so whether we are at home or away, right, whether in this life or the next life, our goal is the same. We make it our aim to please him, to please the Lord. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 The bima is what you would be looking at in the Greek. And the bima was a place where people would receive rewards or they would be judged. Basically, they were treated according to their actions. This was a seat. Again, it's kind of like that picture of of a race, right? Where somebody would go to receive what they've earned. What they've earned. So the person would be rewarded if they won the race, not rewarded if they didn't win the race. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us, what? Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking at those three verses, how many of those verses would have come up if we did a marriage search in our Bibles? None. Because when you look at that, you say, well, they're not talking about marriage. I don't even know why they're in this sermon. Oh, but they are talking about marriage. They are talking about marriage because marriage is one aspect of this race that we want to run well. 
And so when we look at it from a broader perspective, we realize, okay, I am in a race. As a Christian, I am running this race. I want to run it as to win. And now I'm going to yoke myself up with someone. The two are going to become one. And we're either going to help each other run faster or slower. We're either going to be a hindrance to each other's race or we're going to be a help to each other's race. And quite frankly, Yoro, you only race once. And so since I only race once, I want to make sure that I am racing to the glory of God so that I can finish in a way that is well. So when two people are considering marriage, it's not just do we like each other, do we not like each other, do we fit well together, do we have similar interests, do we think we're going to go in the same direction in life? I think those things are important. But it's not just the main thing. The main thing is, is this person going to help me run? Can I help this person run. Last week we heard what I think might have been might have been the best missions message I've ever heard. And by the way, that was Dave Warren's first time preaching ever in his life. So last week, so yeah, just FYI, encourage him the next time you get to speak to him. He did a great, great job reminding us of our calling. We are all to be senders in some way, shape, or form. Is this person going to help me send? This person going to help me run? Can I help them send? Can I help them run? Because we're about to become team members for life. Not temporarily, not just for this one event and then we're going to get a different team. We're team members for life. We're going to be on the same team. So since Yoro is true and you only race once, I have one life to live to glorify God. When two people are considering marriage, they're considering whether they'll make a good team as they run the race of life together. Now, friends, oh, the word of God has so much for us to offer, right? The word of God has so much for us to offer because I'm realizing I'm choosing a friend. I'm choosing a friend who's going to be my best friend, who's going to be my closest friend, who's going to be the most intimately involved person with me in every area of my life. So I want to choose carefully and wisely so that I can run this race well. So with that perspective, I've put six things to consider when choosing a teammate, and that's how I want to close our time. I want us to look at the Word of God and look at six things to consider when choosing a teammate. Number one, team unity is vital. So here's the question. Does this person know how to run? Are they a runner? In other words, are they a Christian? If I'm a Christian, I should be looking to marry somebody who is a Christian because we're running the same race. We need to run the same race. We're not going to help each other when we run two different races. All who are in a race run, to run in a way to, race to win the prize. Yeah, if they're in the race. We need to make sure that the person we're considering marrying is a Christian if we are a Christian. Consequently, if we're not a Christian, we don't have any business marrying a Christian. I want you to look at the word of God from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and following. Again, another verse. You realize 2 Corinthians 6 about being unequally yoked, not a dating verse, not a marriage verse. It's actually a friendship verse, right? It's about companions, about relationships. So if this is true about friendship, how much more so is it true about who's going to be my closest friend, my companion for life, the person who's the most intimately involved with me? 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and following. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what person, excuse me, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So here we're told in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then Paul paints these pictures of believers and unbelievers. What's the commonality between them? He says, what partnership does righteousness have with 
lawlessness. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord does Jesus have with Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? All of these are examples of things that are completely what? Opposite. It's not like, what does light gray have to do with not so light gray? What does teal have to do with dusty teal? Like, it's not just like, oh, these are just different versions of what's kind of the same thing. Light, dark. Righteousness, lawlessness. Jesus, Satan. This is the picture that God paints for us in his word of believers and unbelievers. And you say, but I thought we're called to reach out to believers. We most certainly are. I thought we're called to build relationships with them and, 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 and to try to be the love of Christ with them. And if I can do that at work with my unbelieving person who lives, who lives, who works in the cubicle just next to me or who works down the hall from me or who we get to partner up with on projects, how much better would it be for me to be a more constant and consistent witness by having an unbeliever in my home who I could be that witness constantly? And then we get the whole flirt to convert thing. Then we get the whole marriage as a missionary thing. And, and, and that's not what God has called us to do. Because it's one thing for you to be a light to someone in a dark place, but you can't help them run if they're not into running. And they're not going to help you run if you're not into running. And what's ultimately going to happen, and it happens every time, is if you find a couple who is unequally yoked, one is a Christian, one is not a Christian, the Christian always feels like they're marginalizing someone. Because they're either focusing so much on their Savior and their, their, their husband or wife is not really into it that they're focusing on their Savior. Like, man, I haven't paid any attention to her or him. Or they focus so much on her or him and they're like, man, I really haven't paid much attention to my Savior. But you always feel like these scales are tipping and you always feel like that they're going down at the expense of the other. And there's always this sense of marginalization that happens. You feel like, oh, I, could be, I wish I could take them over here so that they can see the glories of Christ. So that we can walk with the Lord together but they're just not into it. And they may not even be hostile towards the gospel. I'm not saying every unequally yoked marriage is filled with like bloodshed. Like I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying in the best of circumstances, if you ask people who are in that situation, they will tell you it's a constant balancing act. I'm always marginalizing my savior or I'm marginalizing my spouse or I at least feel like I am. Now, I've preached on this before and whenever I do Two types of people tend to interact with me following the sermon, and usually they're gentle. Now, the first is a person whose spouse married him or married her even though they were lost at the time. So he or she is speaking to me about their spouse, and they say, they were a Christian, I was not a Christian. And you have to understand, you have to understand how the Lord used that in my life. I would not be walking with the Lord had that person not married me. I would be on my way to hell had that person not married me. Their constant example, their faithfulness to the scriptures, uh, their humility, their constant dying to self, their devotion to the glory of God was used by God to save me down the line. And I'm really grateful that God put us together because they introduced me to Christ. And what they're basically telling me, quasi-accusing me of doing, is, is not presenting perhaps a fair and balanced picture of the situation because I've not mentioned a story like his or a story like hers. In other words, perhaps they shouldn't have been married in the first place, but look at how it turned out, and so the end justifies, finish it, the means. And you say, well, look at what God has done. And here's what you have to understand. God is a God of redemption. Our God saves. 
our God redeems. You can't read the scriptures very far without figuring out that God loves making good come from that which was not good. That he loves making good come from evil. That he loves the wow he gets. And he loves the glory that he receives as a result of the wow. The blind see. The paralyzed walk. The sick are healed. The dead are raised. Our God saves. However, we would be foolish to read of the Lord healing the man born blind and say the moral of the story is it's great to be blind. Does that make sense? We'd be foolish to read the account of Jesus healing a paralytic and say, you know what? It must be great to be lame because you experience the grace of God in a really special way. Do you see what I'm saying? The end doesn't make, make what happened in the beginning good. What happened in the beginning is sad. What happens in the beginning is wrong. What happened in the beginning is a result of, of sin. What happened in the beginning is maybe not that person's sin, but at least a sinful world. But look at what God has done. Don't ref- confuse what God redeems as what God approves. So just because the story has a happy ending and someone was saved as a result of, of being closely bound together with this person that they weren't supposed to be bound with, that doesn't make it right in the first place. Does that make sense? So that means God redeemed that, and even though, you, and you might be one of those people. So you might be one of the people who God saved as a result of living with a spouse who is loving Jesus when you weren't loving Jesus. I'm so glad God has done that. I'm not judging you at all. I'm glad God has done that. I praise God for that. You'd be foolish to go and tell someone else to say, do as I did. Does that make sense? Because what happened was the person who married you sinned, and God Even though that person sinned, God has chosen to not treat them as their sins deserve, but has met them with grace and mercy. But the moral of the story is, let's not sin so that grace may abound. Does that make sense? Love you. That's how we have to look at at situations like this. Grateful for how God redeems them, but we don't repeat them. We're grateful for how God redeems them, but we don't repeat them. So usually there's that person who approaches me and says, I don't know if you've presented this clear picture. You know how God has used this. I know I shouldn't have done this, but look at what happened. So maybe we should do this as a a result of the love for the lost. No. Even 1 Corinthians 7, which is also in your outline, reminds us this is of of a wife who is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. What? Only in the Lord. Right? So there is that qualifier. Marry within the Lord. Marry within your own, within your spiritual own. Make sure the person knows how to run. The other group of people who will talk to me after I preach on this is someone who's in that situation and they say, what you said, I just want to let you know since you're not unequally yoked, I am unequally yoked, love my husband, love my wife. They don't love the Lord, but it's really, really, really hard. It's really hard. And they'll say things like, I was lonely without a spouse, but it's infinitely harder to be lonely with a spouse. Loneliness outside of marriage is hard. Loneliness inside of a marriage is in many ways way harder. And they will tell me, this has been said to me half a dozen times more. No one's taken me up on it, but I'll I'll say it again. They'll say, if someone is considering doing as I did, I would love to speak to them so they can see what it's like on the other side. There'll be a lady who said, I'm, I, I didn't marry a drug addict. I'm not being beaten. I'm not unhappy. But you have to understand, the struggle is real. 
There is a reason God tells us not to do this. I love my spouse. God has commanded me to love my spouse. My spouse loves me. But not being able to share a love for Christ is dog hard. Because there's a loneliness even within that companionship. Friends, we need to consider, as we are considering who we're running with, does the person even know how to run? Do they want to run? A quick story. A college-age girl from back in uh, New York, where Sarah and I used to live, uh, meets this guy in school. He's really, really nice. She loves the Lord. He does not. He's really, really nice. Um, and they get along great, and they laugh a lot, and he's got a great sense of humor. He's really smart, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, they're, they're perfectly compatible on just about every single level. She's a believer. He's not a believer. Well, he's interested in her, and she says, I don't know if she said I'm interested in you, but she basically said, it can't happen. I only date Christians. I'm not going to date a Christian She's thinking he's real. He was, he was like a bodybuilder, okay? Like even bigger than me. It's hard to believe. But he, he, he so she was like, okay, I, I can't date, I, I don't date non-Christians. I love the Lord. She might have even said I'm really into you. I don't even know. But she's like, but I, it's not going to happen. So she, he's like, well, can I come to your church? She's like, yeah, give me free world. Of course you come to my church. So they come to church. And then he starts going to our church. And you say, well, he's coming for the wrong reasons. He's just coming for her. Shut up. No, he's not. He's coming for the fine reason. That's the draw that got him into church. He's still going to be under the hearing of the word. Oh, he's going for the wrong reason. Do lost people come to church saying, I'm, hi, I'm looking for Jesus. Can you help me find him? Is he back here? No, not often. Sometimes they come because they're invited. And this time he was invited by a really pretty girl who he liked and said, okay, well, I guess the only way to get to know her is to get to know God. So I'll go to church. It's fine, whatever. And he goes to church and he keeps going to church and he keeps going to church and he keeps going to church. And I don't remember the period of time, but the Lord saves him, like legitimately saves him. New heart new mind, doesn't talk the same, can't get enough of his Bible, doesn't act the same, wants to grow in righteousness, he is saved. They date. They are married. We did counseling with them. They have a child. They glorify God. She did a good thing, right? But he died when he was 37. ALS. Now, I need you to connect the dots with me from her faithfulness to say, nope, it's not going to happen without Jesus, to the fact that he's with the Lord right now. Does that, does that, can you connect those dots? Because she said no, he said, well, I, I want to date you anyway, so what do I have to do to date you? He comes to church. That gets him in church. He hears the gospel over and over and over again. The Lord saves him. And yes, they end up getting married and end up having a baby, and he ends up dying really young. But you do understand that on a human level, the reason he's in heaven right now is because she said no way back then. Do you, can you nod if you see that? There is a connection there. See, more is at stake than just, are we a good couple? Quite frankly, just got to be honest with you, 
they're a solid couple even before he was saved. Like compatible, they look good together, they act nice together. He had, they had similar personalities, they were fun to be around. They would have still made a great couple. Her faithfulness to the word of God and to her savior literally was used by God to save his life even after he lost his life. Friends, it's not just about companionship. That's a really sad, happy, horrible, awesome story. Would you agree? Make sure the person is ready to run and even wants to run. Number two. Do either of us take false comfort in divorce as an option if marriage doesn't work out? Divorce is a very complicated topic to address as a byword in a sermon, certainly, but the Bible does address it, um, and there's lots that can be said about it. Divorce is one of the only things in the Bible that is never commanded, consistently warned about, prohibited in most cases, and allowed in some. Did you get all that? Never prescribed. If this happens, you must divorce him. You must divorce her. Not going to find it. It's consistently warned against and presented in a negative life. It's prohibited in most cases, but it's still allowed in some. Putting all those pieces together is a really complicated thing and takes a lot of study of the scriptures. But here's why I'm saying this. If you're considering marrying the person you're also willing to divorce one day, don't get married and you should probably bail. So here's what I'm seeing more and more. I think since divorce is so normative, both in the church and outside of the church, let me just ask this. Just raise your hand if you're like me and your parents are divorced. Okay? Now raise your hand if someone in your family, if there's been a divorce within your family somewhere, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, right? Divorce is very, very, very common. Since it's so common... Since it has become sadly normative, I'm seeing young people think that it's not that big of a deal because they were raised in it and it's like, well, I guess it was hard, but it's the only life I knew. And I mean, everybody else kind of does it. Like, I have friends who do this and this one who has joint custody of this and that. I know someone who, 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 one of Justin's teammates, lives in Bellevue, has another parent in over the Rhine and goes to Ryle. You figure it out. I don't know how that works. But, but, but that's just like, like, like just that stuff is normative now where I spend half my week here, half my week there. And since it's normative, I see young people think I, sometimes they'll actually say it, but most of them you can just tell they're thinking it. All right, if this doesn't work out, like I really hope I don't get divorced, but I might get divorced. That's life. It'll be expensive. It'll be painful. I'll pay it off. Work it out. And friends, People think that if everyone's doing it, it's an obvious option or an easy out or a way to click undo or gain a second chance. Now, granted, divorce does to some degree offer that. But you need to remember that it's one of the only things in the Bible that's never commanded, consistently warned against, prohibited in most cases, and only allowed in some. And with that much caution, with that much warning, you need to understand that in most cases when divorce happens, it gets way harder before it gets easier. Does that make sense? In most cases, even when the divorce happens, when someone's chosen to take that step of divorce, which is horrible and painful and, and, and very, very, very sad, even when there's biblical grounds, still very sad, that they see the grass as greener on the other side of the fence and they think, if I could just get over that fence, all will be well. And I'm just saying that fence 
has electricity running through it, barbed wire attached to it, it's rusted, it's corroded, and it's really, really, really tall. And the process of getting to what you see as the other side of the fence, to what you see as the greener grass, is going to involve a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of turmoil and a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort. People in difficult marriages think that the grass is greener on the other side of the divorce fence. It might be, but what they're underestimating is the size of that fence. Does that make sense? No, I can just climb the fence. There's grass green over there. I'll just scale the fence. Yeah. There's a reason that the Bible speaks the way it does about divorce, even when it's allowed. And that fence is tall and ugly and painful and sharp and jagged. And people rarely scale that fence and don't come out unscathed on the other side. Listen to me. I'm not a no-divorce guy in my understanding of the Scriptures. Grace Fellowship Church is not that. We, 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 don't, we, we believe there are biblical grounds for divorce. People in difficult marriages uh, uh, oftentimes think that the grass is greener on the other side of that fence. In most cases, listen to me, listen, not all cases, but most cases, reconciliation is a better option. Most cases, so what about this? I said most, right? Did I say most? Look at your neighbor say, he said most. Okay, I said most. So that extreme case, the thing that you're, oh, what about this extreme case? What about that extreme case? I'm saying most cases. In most cases, when people are saying maybe we should get divorced, in most cases, if it can be worked out, if reconciliation can be made, if repentance can happen, if restoration can happen, that'll be a long process, but far greater and far better than the pain that comes with divorce. If you're considering marriage and you have even the slightest willingness to divorce the individual you're considering marrying, bail. Save yourself and the other person a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of heartache. Join up with someone whom you have absolutely positively no intention of ever divorcing. Matthew 19, verse 6, so the two become one flesh, where what? Therefore, God is joined together. Let not man separate. The mystery of the one flesh union that takes place in marriage is glorious. Listen to me. Two, becoming one is a glorious thing. Watch. Up here. One, becoming two, is a painful ripping. It's painful. Because there's a ripping apart of what God has joined together. And that rip hurts a lot. There's a lot of pain and a lot of bloodshed. One becoming two requires a a tearing, a ripping apart. No matter how common it is in our culture, among Christians and non-Christians alike, the horrible pain associated with the tearing of one to become two is not something you should have up your sleeve as you enter marriage. If you're considering marrying the person you're also willing to divorce one day, don't get married and probably stop dating. Number three, are other runners excited for you to team up with this person? Other runners, other people who are in the race with you, other people who are running for the same prize, who are running alongside you, are they running with you and saying, I like this right here. I like how you guys run together. You run better after you spend time with her. You run better after you spend time with him. I think you guys would run well together. See, we're a people of the word, and the word tells us to be a people of community. 
Marriage is supposed to paint a picture, and it's supposed to be forever. Divorce is very painful and should be avoided. And if you're considering marrying a person, you should be seeking the counsel of a fairly wide range of people. Don't just ask people who will tell you what you want to hear. Your BFF might be so excited about how Instagrammable the two of you are, but it's going to take more than that to make a marriage work. So I'm encouraging every single one of us to either seek or speak. Meaning if you're considering marriage, we should be a people of community. Don't just ask one person who's like, yeah, I kind of like you guys. It's kind of cool. It's kind of awesome. You're kind of funny and it's really cool. You guys like milkshakes. I like milkshakes. We can get milkshakes. Like, it's, it's, you don't just ask one person. Seek a wide range of people. Someone who's going to say, well, here's what I'm concerned about, or here's what I see. Someone who's going to have that runner's approach, who's going to know that you want to finish, you want to finish strong, you want to finish well. Can this person help you run? You need to seek that. And you don't have to please every single person, but ask people who are going to tell you what you may not want to hear. You need to have a friend who's going to be able to say, bro, listen, I don't see it. I know you see it. She's easy on the eyes. That's cool. That's great. I'm not seeing it. Like you two, together, I don't think this is wise. You need to have a girl who's going to come up to you and say, listen, I know you're really into him. He's really cute. He's an empty suit. There's not much beyond there. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to help you run. I don't know if you guys are going to run well together. Because loneliness outside of a marriage is hard and loneliness inside of a marriage is even harder. We need to be seeking counsel. We need to be speaking counsel. It sounds like that means we need to be giving our opinions on everyone's lives. Well, yeah, kind of. It would be helpful because marriage is forever. That doesn't mean that we're judgmental. I'm telling you to speak to the person, not about the person. Well, I didn't tell her, but I like told six of my friends, and they all agree with me, so we decided we we're going to pray together. And... Good. Pray and go. Add feet to your prayers. You can pray together, then go speak. Because marriage is forever, and marriage is serious. This should be happening within community. And the Word of God tells us that without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. That's not a marriage verse. Heck, yes, it is. Proverbs 15.22 says, with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. Friends, given the seriousness of marriage, if the person isn't asking your opinion, offer it anyway. And do so with as much time as possible, and with as much love as possible. Bro, I've got to be honest, I'm not seeing it. Girl, I know you love him, I just don't know if you should. This is not the time to be politically correct or hide behind a false veil of humility and what's socially correct, and it's time to be clear. And if you see something, say something. If you think someone is going to stand at the altar and take vows, 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 with someone whom they probably shouldn't, speak up now, not later. You know, I always had concerns. Wow, fat lot of good that did. Well, I just figured I would just trust him in the Lord. I feel like God probably knew the concerns before you told them. Did you tell your friend? Helps nobody for you to say, oh, I kind of saw this coming. Listen, I've done both. I've not said something, and then my fear has happened. I've said something, and it's been super awkward, but at least I know I gave them the best help that I could give them. I still love them to this day, whether they got married or not, but my friend knows I care enough to say, listen, 
I love you a lot. And I really like her in a sense. <laughs> I don't know if this is as awesome as you think it's going to be. That's what friends do. They speak the truth in love so they can build one another up. Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Competent to be able to do that. Two more things. Nope, three more things. Number four, over time, you need to know that team members tend to think and act alike. So you also need to consider, do I want to run like this person runs? Because you're going to rub off on each other. That's not just the guys need to ask that about. I mean, girls need to ask that about guys because guys are the leader and they set a pace. I'm not denying that. But I'm telling you, Sarah and I, we're coming up on 16 years of marriage. I'm a little more like her. She's a little bit more like me. That means I've grown in grace and understanding and wisdom as a result of her. And she now tells better jokes with better comedic timing. But the (laughs) bottom line is, over time, we become more like each other. We rub off on each other. It's going to happen. You live with the person. You're going to rub off on them. And for better or for worse, you're going to become more like them. I've seen Sarah respond to the kids in ways that I know is wrong and I also know sounds a lot like me. She's seen me do the same. We rub off on each other. So you need to ask yourself as we run this race, do I want to run like this person? And am I able to help this person run? Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I don't see husband or wife in that verse at all. I know, but iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Proverbs thirteen, twenty: whoever walks with the wise becomes what? Wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We're gonna rub off on each other. Do I want this person rubbing off on me? Do I want to act like this? Not in every way, but do... Do I more appreciate and value and admire what I see in this other person than I do uh, have concerns? Because we're going to rub off on each other. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and following. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you what? Learn his ways and entangle yourself in a trap, in a snare. You hang around with angry people, you're probably going to become ticked more often. Do I want to become like this person? Team members tend to think and act alike over time. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be, con- be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You say, well, those are verses we tell kids, like in youth group, when it comes to choosing to hang around with good friends. Yeah, it would like also apply to marriage as well. Bad company corrupts good morals. We're going to rub off on each other. Do I want to be like this person? Number five, can we tell each other hard things we need to hear in order to run better? Will this person receive correction? Will this person tell me what I need to know even when it's hard? Uh, Will this person tell me hard truth in a loving way to get my attention so that I can grow? Or is this person going to say that, yeah, I kind of see that, but I don't really want to tell you. I kind of see that, but I don't really want to share that. I don't want to have a confrontation. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and following. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Will this person be a faithful friend enough in my life to wound me when I need it because it will get my attention? Because this is someone that we're going to spend the rest of our lives with. Proverbs 27 and verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. 
Love perfume. I used to have a whole, I used to have more cologne than you could shake a stick at. I was that guy. I was totally that New York Guido with all the cologne lined up on the back. Sarah met me and they all of a sudden, they just started disappearing. Cool water? No? Anyone? Thank you. Never mind. Polo spot. I got to stop. But those things don't last. Oil and perfume may make the heart glad. That's great. But the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. I got to stop thinking about the cologne. I had knockoffs too. It was really bad. Finally, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to look at point number six. When we lose our way, can we point each other to the one person we need to look to for motivation, endurance, and strength to run? Because Hebrews 12 and verse 2 have some of the most important words we need to see, and there are three of them, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Last story. I was just in a really down place like three weeks ago. Just life was just heavy. Uh, This summer's been weird for a bunch of reasons. Not bad, just weird and different traveling. I also was jet lagged, so I was like, just didn't know when I was tired, when I wasn't tired, if I was coming or going. Just felt just felt blah. Just felt blah. How many of you can relate to that? Just, ugh. And I had trouble, just, just trouble re- reminding myself of the things that I already know. I wasn't in any huge besetting sin. Nothing had really changed in my life, but I was just, blah. And Sarah and I had had a, uh, we had had an argument that we needed to resolve Ironically, it came the week after I preached on anger. I don't want to really talk about that. (laughs) She she said, you need to listen to your sermon. And I said, I can't. They didn't record it. It was super mature. It was awesome. (laughs) Um, uh, And that night, so I go off to work because terrible things only happen when you're on your way to work, on your way to church, or on your way to bed. So I go off to work, come back, and we discuss it that night. We work it all out. Then I just start sharing my heart and what I'm feeling. This is right after we worked out an argument. So it's still kind of like, you know, like, it's nice, but it's tense. You know what I mean? Like, we still, we worked it out, and it's all worked out, but still kind of like, like that. Do you know that? Like, this? You know that. And I'm just like, here's what I'm feeling. And I'm just like, I just lay it all out there. And Sarah was able to preach the gospel to me and just remind me of what I'd forgotten. And very simply say, I don't think you've remembered the fact that whenever you get up every morning, there's nothing... That when you get up every morning, there's nothing you need to do that day to impress or earn God's love. And she said that, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I 
full-out ugly cried. I mean, hard, hardcore, just gone. But since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we want to lay aside the sin and the weight which so easily ensnares us, easily entangles us, and what? Look to Jesus. And Sarah helped me look to Jesus. She didn't solve any of my problems. She couldn't fix any of the things that I was concerned about. But she helped me look to Jesus. Is the person you're considering running with for the rest of your life able to help you to look to the one person you need to look for when motivation is just gone and endurance doesn't seem to be there and strength is depleted and they cannot have you look to them, not have you look over at how great they're doing or have you, have you compare things and just solve the problem but can just remind you that you need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gospel and grateful that we can be used by one another to point one another to you. Thank you for calling us to run the race that you have placed us in. Thank you for making us runners. Thank you for qualifying us for this race because of Christ. And Lord, would you help us in all of our relationships, but particularly for those among us who are considering marrying someone, help them to think through a race mentality. Is this person going to help me to run this race well? I want to run well. And Lord, I pray that they would consider the wisdom of your word as they consider making a teammate for life. And it's my hope and prayer that those who are about to set off on this race together, Lord, would you bless them in all their days of running? Would you cause them to glorify you, honor you, love you all of their days? And may they shine brightly for the glory of God and for the sake of other people. We pray in Jesus' good, mighty name. Amen.